Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This week on part two of Game of Crimes. Well, yeah, and this is the interesting part of that because, you know, I was really the wrong guy for this job. But in that, you know, I wasn't a gun person. You know, I was a city boy and I, I don't, I think I'd handled a weapon, but I really had nothing to do with guns until I got in the Army. And, you know, there's all these guys out there that have full garages full of reloaded ammo and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and I end up being the guy that's out there in the middle of this. Well, these stupid little dump pouches, I mean, you dumped them out and it just dropped, you know, six rounds into your hand. And then you had to try to get them straight and, you know, feed them and all that kind of stuff. And anyway, when, and, and I was really, really surprised myself. I, I, the, the pickup was kind of sideways to me. And I really didn't have a good target. I mean, all I knew was I wanted to keep him out of that house. And the target that I had was shadows underneath between the wheels of the pickup. You run out of gas. You, I hate to use the bad turn of a phrase, but you're dead in the water. There's nothing you can do. Nobody's going to be running out there with all of this shit going down to bring you a gallon of gas to get you into a gas station. Right. You're out of the fight. Yeah. And, and, and it was, it was, a, it, I don't know. It was a, just a split second decision, you know, and it had I stopped for gas, I wouldn't have been involved in it, I'm sure. So I've just, one of those things that happened. Well, let's, from that decision not to get gas, what happened after that? I just kept heading north, and and, uh, and, and it, I had never been north of Colby in my life. Uh, end up north of, or, uh, you know, into Rollins County, a county that I'd never been in in my life. And uh, I meet two semis, and all of a sudden, tucked in behind the second semi is this pickup that we're looking for. I mean, it was just boom, boom. There he is. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, crap. There he is. Did you guys make eye contact? Yeah. Um, actually, my very first impression of the whole thing when I saw him, I made eye-to-eye -eye contact with the driver, which was Mark Walter, who was 18 years old. And I remember, and I don't know why I thought about this, but I remember as I was making a U-turn thinking, Jesus Christ, that's just a baby. You know, he just... You know, he was a baby-faced 18-year-old kid, and I'm thinking, that's just a kid. So, and this is on, you're north of I-70 on K-25 right now, right? So. Oh, yeah, we're, yeah, we're way north. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're like 17 miles north, I think, of Colby, something like that. So what happens at that point? You, you flip a U-turn, and now, um, you know, what happens next? 
Okay, I, I, I flipped to you. Um, I managed to get around the two semis. As soon as he sees me, he passes the two semis. I flip to you. I managed to get around the two semis. Uh, somehow, somewhere in there, um, I pass a Colby police car, a marked car, that is, and he's making, he makes a U-turn behind me. And then there's this station wagon behind me, and I had no clue who that was. And it just all happened so quick. And all the, the, the radio traffic, you know, with just basically one channel, you know, for us. And, and then, of course, their channels. Um, you know, I never had a chance. I never got on dispatch at all. They didn't even know I was there. And apparently what had happened is they went up to, to the city of Atwood, and I don't know how they saw it or they didn't see them, but um, they apparently saw a roadblock that was in Atwood and they flipped to you and headed back South. That's why I, you know, ran into them. No, I was going to say, I get it. So they're going North Atwood's North there on K 25, right? Some kind of roadblock there. So had it not been for that roadblock, they would have kept going. You never would have seen them. Most they, likely. they would have been in Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. So they turn around and they come South. Now from the minute you turn around, how long do you follow them before they, uh, obviously they're trying to get away from you, but do you keep going south for quite a while? What Not very next? long, no. We got, around the, we got around the semis, and it was like, boom, they see this farmhouse. And the farmhouse has uh, two driveways. They have a north driveway, which goes into uh, like a big metal outbuilding, like the, you know where they keep their tractors and stuff. And the south driveway um, goes to the house. So they take the north driveway and they start heading off that north driveway at an angle towards the house. And, the, you know, that's the one thing that I did right all day. If I did anything right was, and I don't know why I did it, but um, I didn't follow them. When they hit, hit, you know, when they hit the shoulder and hit that driveway headed towards the house, I stayed on the road and I gunned it and got up ahead of them and then managed to pull into the driveway of the house, you know, before they got there. And that, you know, that kept them out of that house. And of course we didn't know it at the time, but the house was empty. But, you know, I mean, any farmhouse out there is full of guns and probably full of people and, and uh, you know, why I didn't just stay right on their butt, which would have been real problematic. You know, I'd been right on their butt when they jumped out and started shooting, but it you know, just got me away from them a little bit and, you know, kept them out of that house. Well, but Mark, by this point, you already known they've shot and killed at least one person. They've shot uh, and wounded Ben Albright. Um, there's two additional bodies that we're talking about. So we're talking about four shootings, three different scenes, at most likely three dead, one wounded. Yeah, I mean, I, I think intuitively, like you were thinking in your mind, it's like... Uh, um, I'm not going to, you know, if you get in behind them, they're going to ambush you like they did Ben Albright or try to come out in Russia. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just one of those deals, a split second decision that um, I could have made right or I could have made wrong. And I made it right. Thank God. But, you know, I don't I don't know how I did. But Mark, and this is the point I wanted to ask you, because we said this is eerily similar now to you being kidnapped from the gas station. Did any of that flash through your mind when this was going on, thinking about shit when I was 16? I got robbed at a gas station, you know, and I got kidnapped. Did any of that flash through your mind at that point, or was that something just for later? No, uh, no, no. I actually, I've never put that together until now. You know, kind of, kind of mentally preparing for this. See, that's we're part psychologists on this show. Yeah, we're part <laughs> psychologists. How did that make you feel, I, Mark? Yeah. I had no, I never really, 
put those together at all until, until you know, I was kind of, you know, this is all, most of this stuff is almost 40 years ago. So I had to do a little research to look back at some of this stuff. And, and even though these things are like once in a lifetime occurrences, a lot of people don't go through what you did, but a lot of people don't go through a kidnapping and robbery like you did, and then getting assaulted like you did, and then getting into a massive chase like this. So, I mean, the details even then get kind of foggy, but you talk about going around and blocking them from the house. Who else was with you at that point? Okay, uh, the the Colby police car that was right behind me that made the U-turn behind me, uh, he pulled basically right behind me, but at a you know at a different angle. I mean, he was straight with the road. I had pulled in facing the house. He stopped right behind me, um, and then back at the first driveway. And I really wasn't paying attention because you know the old thing that they you know that they say about you know these incidents uh, you know about having tunnel vision um, is definitely true, but um, the station wagon, two guys in civilian clothes, which turned out to be the two half brothers from Colby PD, thank God, um, they stopped back at the first driveway and they, they were armed with a rifle. And anyway, as I started getting out, I had one foot out and a bullet came through my windshield. It was from Mark Walter that, you know, he had gotten out on the, he was driving, he had gotten out on the driver's side. And so I ran around to the corner of my car and uh, they were shooting, you know, Mark Walter was, had run around to the other side. Um, I never saw the other two, uh, Danny Rometta and Lisa Dunn, I never saw them get out. They had to have gotten out on the passenger side. And then um, the hitchhiker, J.C. Hunter, he got out and was running back behind the other behind that outbuilding. Was he was he taking cover or running away? And the reason I ask that, we're going to talk about his involvement in trial, you know, a little bit later. But when you saw that, did it look like like he was running away or more like taking cover? Um, running away, but uh, I mean, he ran around to the back side of the building. So I guess you could interpret it either way. But you know, what I didn't know at the time was that there, you know, there was only two guns and he had one of them. See, that's going to, uh, folks, we're not going to skip ahead on this, but that's going to be a problem for me later for this trial. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and the reason I wanted folks to understand what you used to carry, because you're talking about a Smith & Wesson 686. It's a stainless uh, uh, four-inch revolver, wooden handles, but with ammo dumps. And if people don't know what ammo dumps were, those were, tell them, Mark, tell, tell them how fun it was to try and go out to the range with ammo dumps. Well, yeah, and this is the interesting part of that because, you know, I was really the wrong guy for this job. But in that, you know, I wasn't a gun person. You know, I was a city boy, and I, I don't – I think I had handled a weapon, but I really had nothing to do with guns until I got in the Army. And, you know, there's all these guys out there that have full garages full of reloaded ammo and all this kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and, and I end up being the guy that's out there in the middle of this. Well, these stupid little dump pouches, I mean, you dumped them out and it just dropped, you know, six rounds into your hand. And then you had to try to get them straight and, you know, feed them and all that kind of stuff. And anyway, and I was really, really surprised myself. I, I, the, the pickup was kind of sideways to me and I really didn't have a good target. I mean, all I knew was I wanted to keep them out of that house and the target that I had was shadows underneath between the wheels of the pickup. 
and that's what I was shooting at. And I, and I probably shot way too much. I fired six rounds, reloaded, fired six rounds, reloaded again, uh, ended up with, ended up with a full gun and a nice little neat little pile of, of ammo. And I, I don't know if you knew the rest of that story. No, let's hear it. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know what, yeah. Back in the, when we used to go to the range, we'd start at the 25 yard line and we'd drop six rounds in a coffee can and then we'd move up to the 15 and then the seven, taking our can with us all the way along the way. Well, after my deal, they said that I subconsciously was putting, emptying my rounds into a can because they were all in a neat little pile, all 12 of them. And so I was the reason they took away our coffee cans. For and for our listeners, that's because you had to police your own brass after you fire, finished qualifying. You had to go around and pick up your expended brass. Exactly. We all did the same thing. <laughs> well, Mark, you might not know this about Murph, too, but uh, Murph was the firearms instructor, one of them for DEA. And so we've talked about this extensively. You play like you practice, right? You're going to perform the same way you've been taught. And I, it was the same thing with us, too. But I will tell you, and they, they, uh, uh, I was already on the patrol and we had done the same thing. And I think it was, do you remember Charlie Hanna? Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. It should have been Charlie out there, not me. <laughs> no, dude. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, it was, it was your day, brother. But Charlie Hanna, this guy was awesome. He was a freaking firearms legend. We have a picture of him. I think one of the people in our KHP group, you know, has a picture of Charlie Hanna holding a sub Thompson submachine gun. Exactly. Yeah. He had a Thompson. <laughs> Yeah, and he talked about fights. He called them fights. You remember? Yep. Gun battles. He didn't. He didn't say gun gun battles. He just said, "If you're ever in a fight," and that's the way he said it. Uh, but he was good. We had guys that would sit at the fifty yard line. Um, Steve Jensen, I think, was one of them. Take a pistol out and hit hit the ten ring from fifty yards out with that Smith and Wesson, just to show people you can be accurate with that. Now, when you get into a gun battle, obviously it's a little different. But so when you were firing, because that's the thing too. Had you gone through that other six rounds, how many other, how much ammo did you have available to you after that? Ah, uh, in my glove box was a, a box of fifty. Yeah, you would have had to run, get into your glove box, right? That's, and then, well, yeah, that's another interesting. I, I but it just to Steve's point, I, I, I noticed when I was talking about dumping all in one pile, he was shaking his head, so he knew what I was going to say. But, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so that was the one criticism that they had of my, you know, the after action was that I, that I was dumping. And after <clears throat> the shooting had stopped, I popped, I, and I did, I had a full gun and I never dropped around. And I don't know how I did that. Cause I probably never went to the range one time that I didn't drop around somehow. I didn't, but after it was all, after it had stopped, I popped my trunk and grabbed my rifle that my dad had bought me and uh closed the trunk and i ended up going up um after well we're kind of skipping ahead but um yeah before we skip ahead let's talk about that because it's important i think the order of, of march that happens here so you're firing at them you've got the colby officer next to you right and then the two half brothers are by the station wagon up on the road up by the first driveway yeah and apparently <clears throat> they had um, you know, of course, this guy is focused. Mark Walters is, is shooting, and he's focused on us. He's focused on the two Mark cars. He's shooting at us. Um, 
one of the half brothers, Ken Dival, he uh, he yells at him, and so he starts to turn towards him. And when he does, he hits him with the rifle right in the forehead. And he goes down and he starts yelling. One of the brothers yells, cease fire, cease fire. So that's when I got my, my, uh, my rifle out. What was interesting about the rifle was after I had gone up, we'd secured the prisoners. I came back, um, put the rifle away, and that was it. And I'd forgot about it. And I never, ever in any of my reports or anything else mentioned that rifle. I never, somebody years later came up to me and said, yeah, I got there just about the time that you were pulling your rifle out. And I went, I didn't pull my rifle out. I didn't remember it. Just did it. What kind of rifle was it? Uh, it was a three oh eight. I don't remember. I don't remember is that the what, brand. Is that what the uh, officer had that shot Walters had? I thought he had a three oh eight too or a two seven. I don't know. I don't know. Oh. Now, the Colby officer that was next to you, did he fire off any shots? No. Okay. So it was you. You fired off 12 rounds, and then the only other shot was the shot from the uh, other officer, which took out Walters? Yes. So at that point, had gunfire stopped from their side as well? Because like you said, Hunter had the gun, and he had run behind the shed. But at some yeah, point— Yeah, Hunter never fired a shot there. Yeah. But at some point, I thought Lisa Dunn got a shotgun blast wound. Well, uh, there's a lot of mis there's a lot of contention about that, um, about where that her wound came from. I know specifically because, as far as I know, none of mine were ever accounted for specifically. But I know in my own mind, twice when I pulled the trigger, something moved in conjunction with. So I felt like I hit something twice. You know what uh, it could that, have been. I was just thinking about that because a lot of folks, you remember these old farm driveways, right? They're made of gravel. If you're skipping rounds underneath there, that round's hitting the gravel, the gravel's hitting up there, and it could look like buckshot or it could look like, you know, something like that that would look like a gunshot wound. Well, it's funny that you said because I had presence of mind. You know, again, I'm not a shooter, but my very first shot, there was snow on the ground. My very first shot came up way short and hit snow. And I, you know, I had presence of mind to tell myself, okay, dummy, slow down, you know, squeeze them off like you know. Anyway, um, there's also in the reading, supposedly J.C. Hunter accidentally shot her in the butt. So where that wound came from. But wasn't part of the contention of what Hunter says later, though, he was trying to kill Rometta or shoot Rometta yes. and he hit Dunn yes. accidentally? yes. See, yeah, this, I, is, yeah. this is the part that's such bullshit about this. I mean, it's like we're supposed – here's people who have robbed, killed their way through four, five, six states now, and we're supposed to believe their version of events. Right. Uh, anyway, but how long from the time they pulled into that driveway, you pull up, you get fired at, um, shots are fired, till this thing is over with, how long of a time are we talking about? Two minutes, maybe, at the most. Pretty quick. And I know you had your army training and stuff, but had you, the other thing too, you talk about, you, you play like you practice, you shoot like you train, but you know, I also know that too, so many times people, we all put on the hearing protection and everything, but then the first time you actually fire a weapon without ear protection on, it's like, you go, You're what like, the wow. hell was, <laughs> yeah. what was your experience? You scare yourself. Yeah. Did that happen um, to you? I don't remember it. It, it. It's entirely possible, but I don't remember it. 
This is what's amazing though, too, because what we're talking about is even in training, like you said, you may have dropped around, but you're talking about you still have to keep your eyes down range and you you have to dump your brass and then you have to load rounds one at a time. So you got six rounds in your hand. And when I was taught, I think even Larry Cole was one of my instructors. He said, you put your thumb on the indentation, you know, on the cylinder and you use that to move it. So you touch it, put it in there, turn it, touch it, turn it. And so I tried, I used to practice closing my eyes, having ammo dumps in there. And I'm telling you, even in, in practice under controlled conditions, it was extremely tough. How you managed to load six rounds twice and not drop a round, um, it was a good day for you, brother. Yeah. I'm totally amazed because I'm not a good I, I was not a I, I was not a shooter. I mean I I got you know I got by at the range. I always passed, but I I never was good. And never will be. My wife's a better shot than I am. Yeah, well, we'll talk about Not your good. bowling. We'll, we'll talk about you make up for it in other areas. Uh, but Steve, talk about that for a second, too. You remember the days, I, I, I know you probably didn't have speed loaders. You had musket loaders back in Krusty Krab, right? Black powder, you <laughs> well, know, doing that. Those were long guns. Those were your long guns, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but did you ever have to train with uh, ammo dumps? Oh, yeah. That's what we started with was the uh, ammo dumps that, you know, you when you done snap it, the front of it would fall down and then dump into your hand. So that's where the ammo dump comes from. And then we went to, when I got to DEA, we started with, we, we were issued revolvers when I went through DEA in 87, um, uh, Smith and Wesson Model 10s, I believe it was, three and a half inch barrel, uh, fixed sights. I mean, just a basic gun, but it was a good gun. And they initially issued the two by two pouches. So you could reach down with your fingers and scoop two rounds at a time. And you can insert two at a time pretty easy with a little bit of practice. And then, uh, I mean, I'd been shooting competition using speed loaders for years. And I'm thinking, why in the hell are we using dump pouches and two-by-twos when we got speed loaders? And, and so I had to buy my own when I got out to the field. But uh, it, it wasn't much longer after that that the 9 millimeters were really coming into to their heyday. And uh, that's when I went to just because, you know, people say one shot, one kill. Well, that sounds real good in the movies. But in real life, when somebody's shooting at you, you want as many rounds in your gun as you can get. And you want as many extra rounds on your belt as you can carry. So I, 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 there's a lot of braggadocio when it goes on when people say that one shot, one kill. Maybe you can do it, but the gun battles I've been in, I want as many ammo, <laughs> as much ammo as I can get. First rule of gunfight, bring lots of guns. Second rule of gunfights, bring lots of friends with guns. And there you had go. some friends with guns that day, Mark. But <laughs> let's let's. Oh let's, yeah, thank God. Let's walk back a little bit because uh, they call ceasefire. You grab the rifle, you go up there. Um, I want to, I mean, you're a cop, but a lot of us experience things for the first time. Had you ever uh, seen a dead body prior to that? Oh, yeah. You're probably act yeah. fatalities and accidents and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 83 Highway. Oh, that was a killer back in that day because there was no shoulder and all that truck traffic. And But and what about a gunshot were... victim? No, I don't think so. So it was, was it pretty obvious when you walked up there because... You knew it later he shot him through the forehead, but you didn't know at the time, right? You just knew that he was down, Walters? Yes. When you went up there, it was pretty obvious he was no longer a threat, right? Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, um, yeah, basically what w came out of his head was all over the side of the truck, on that side of it, the passenger side. And when you, when you went up there, like you said, you're taking them into custody, um, where was Rometta, Danny Rometta and Lisa Dunn? Um, uh, she was laying down. She was the one that I initially handcuffed. Um, he was, he was laying down, uh, off to the side. I mean, he didn't, 
he didn't offer any resistance. He, I don't know. He was, I, I was kind of related him to like the typical bully, you know, he talked tough, but when it came down to the, the serious stuff, he was a real wimp. Yeah. When, uh, when people don't have any weapons to fight back, he's a tough guy, but when he runs up into his match, Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. I'm sorry. Don't shoot me. Don't hurt me. Yeah. There's a technical term for that. He's a pussy. That's what he is. He's chicken <laughs> shit. Yeah. Chicken shit. Um, but, and, and, but how did you get Hunter into custody? Hunter, uh, well, okay, he went around the back, and again, there was snow on the ground. And, you know, that, uh, well, actually, it was before we went up. I heard the two guys, the two Colby half-brothers, uh, yelling at him over there. And they, yell, they were yelling at him to get down, and one of them went over and got him. And so he had run around the side, and apparently back around the corner of the building, uh, it looked like he had fallen down. And this, the gun, which was a twenty-two, had just kind of skiffed underneath the snow. And you could see, like, handprints where he was, like, trying to find the gun. And then they took it. If, if you're not involved, then why the hell are you looking for a gun? The cops are on the scene. All you got to do is put your hands up, lay down on the ground. Why the hell are you looking for a gun? Yep. Everybody's wondering where we're going with this. Trust me, folks. We're weaving a thread here. It all comes to pass, uh, in some later things. So let's talk about the aftermath of this too. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll lay out for the folks here in a little bit. Cause we both, you know, we've all done our research, but we have some, we have, we can give you the additional crimes that were committed before this, but this is a multi-state killing spree. And, um, just for let folks know, there's a difference between mass murder, which it all takes place at one place at one time, a serial killer, you know, uh, that, that is identified by a cooling off period. Two or more of the FBI says not two or more people who were killed. But a spree killer is somebody who may do a shooting in one place, continues on to another. So it's a continuous string with no basically stopping. And Rometta and Dunn and uh, Walter, at a minimum, were spree killers prior to picking up Hunter. So let's talk about now you're out there. What I mean, just tell us about the law enforcement response. These guys are down. You're two minutes uh, Walter's down. Uh, everybody's in custody now. What happens now, Mark? Uh, uh, it's just not very long. I mean, all of a sudden, the place was just swarming with cops. I mean, they were everywhere, troopers and deputies and, you know, from just all over the place. When is well, the first were... time KHP found out you were on the scene, dude? Ah. Because <laughs> your sergeant's got to be going, where the hell is yeah, K-16? Well, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, your brain's a little froggy. and. Uh, my car's sitting back there running, and I was one of those guys that was real anal about, you know, I was a trooper. I was supposed to wear my hat. You probably didn't because it would mess up your hair, but uh, I'm <laughs> no, sorry, back, Murph. Back, I, I, <laughs> back in the day, case 378, Charlie Eakins wrote me up one time because I was out basically on a felony arrest trying to arrest the guy, and I didn't have my hat on. He didn't write me up, but he just kind of canceled. Son, where's your hat? Well, I was real anal about that. I, I, I so. And here's where my brain got got froggy. So, okay, it's all said and done. Um, Ron Darling, I don't know if you heard new Ron. Ron took Lisa Dunn, took her back to his car. Um, so the first thing I do is go to my car to get my and hat. Get your hat. <laughs> and somebody tells me, uh, 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 don't touch it, don't touch it. That's a crime scene. I'm going, oh, crap. I don't have a hat. And... I've just been involved in a shooting. They shot a hole through my car, which pisses me off. Now and I'm worried about my damn hat. And so they did let me shut my car off. But they're like, no, you get away from your car. Oh, crap. Okay. 
So my sergeant gets there and he's, you Who's know, your sergeant at, least, at the time, Dwayne cry. I didn't know him. Um, great man. And he comes flying up there from Oakley. So he's probably 50 miles away. And the first thing that I say to him, he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, he's worried about his, his young trooper. And I'm going, Sarge, the reason I don't have my hat on is they, they won't let me. Well, I mean, that's indoctrinated to you in the academy. You know, especially I, I troopers, just brain troopers. Dead. Did you guys have the campaign hats? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a point of pride with every trooper I think I've ever met in my life, regardless of what state they're a trooper. If that's what they wear, those things are special. But there's a reason. There's a reason for the campaign hats and stuff, too. And this all goes back to the psychology of stopping people. That's why our uniforms were tailored and everything. When you're the only person out there, guy or girl, you have to create an imposing command presence. And those hats actually made you look a little taller than what you were. You know, it, authority, because you think of drill sergeants and stuff like that. We had the Sam Brown belt, the leather strap that went across your shoulder down to your gun belt. And the uniforms, you, I mean, they were not only tailored, but tailored so that you could wear a vest underneath. Now I have to ask you one question, Mark. You're you're kind of an old school guy. Do you have a vest on that day? No. You're shaking no. your head. No, I yeah. never hardly ever wore a vest. Almost never. How come? Um, I don't know. It, it was kind of the beginning of them, and I, I don't know. Now, did it after that day was over? Did it change your mind at all, or did did it not phase you? No, no, I never did. Ah, oh, I man. never did like them. Oh, well, should have been in a suit then, my friend. <laughs> be a sergeant, be a lieutenant sitting in the headquarters, you know. But uh, my dad bought me one that was, you know, the, of course, the patrol ones were real thick and heavy. And my dad bought me one that was real light. And I did wear it some, but not much. No, I remember the first vest we got issued on the patrol. They were like strapping a phone book onto the front and back. There was oh, yeah. no side panels, no nothing. It was like, what good are these things? They I just forgot the, the name. There was a company name of some l real lighter ones. But. Uh, well, there were Second Chance. <clears throat> second Chance, yeah. Yeah, Second Chance. Yeah, those were ones that came out. That's the one that the guy, you'd see him do um, demonstrations. He'd put a vest on, and then he'd take a six-inch gun and shoot himself in the chest, you know, with the weapon. And What a dummy. Uh, Bullets still penetrate the vest. They hurt, you know. But let's go back here's to this law enforcement. Yeah, here's your sign, brother. Let's go back to the law enforcement response. So you're there, so... Um, as in most shootings or something like that, I'm pretty sure the K the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, KBI, came in and took over um, the crime scene. Is that right? Yes. Do you remember who the agent was? I should. I sat in court with him plenty. That's okay. Um, nice guy, but I, yeah, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, that's okay. But, but, but they come in and they basically take over. So now you're investigating the shooting. Um, how long did it take? How long did it take to uh, investigate the scene before you were released? You know, I really had almost no active part investigating the scene. Um, I was maybe there for an hour or so, and they sent me down to Colby, and I went into the police department there, <clears throat> which was interesting in and of itself because Colby and Oakley were close, and the dispatchers were close, the officers were close. Of course, Ben was from both. Um, about the time that I pulled into the parking lot, uh, two of the Oakley dispatchers had just gotten out of their car. They were just kind of going in to, you know, kind of comfort, you know, um, the, the Colby dispatchers and stuff. But And they looked over and saw that bullet hole in my car in the windshield, and they went, were you up there? They, they didn't even know I was there. No, anyway, I drive every so day with a bullet hole in my windshield. <laughs> yeah. And here's your sign. So I, I uh, 
uh, yeah, I was, I really, you know, I was kind of a hit and run in this. I think I, I told you, but, um, you know, I was an outsider. I mean, I wasn't stationed in Colby. I was totally out of my area. I went up, got involved and went home. And that was pretty much it. I mean, I went down to, to Colby, wrote my reports and what all happened at the scene afterwards was, was, uh, you know, I really didn't have much to do with any, any of the investigation afterwards. The, the interesting part of that was that day when I finally got home was late at night. And we're talking, you know, this is back in the day when, uh, CNN was pretty new. Yep. And, and I had, you know, we had like those nine foot satellite dishes in our yard and that kind of crap. And I got home that night and I'm turn on CNN and there I am walking across the yard with no hat on. <laughs> and I thought, Oh crap. Dear so Colonel, called, nobody was more yeah, surprised than no. me when the video, <laughs> the news captured me without my so, cover on. Yeah. So the first thing I do is I like, Oh crap. I don't want my parents in, in DC, you know, in Maryland to see this or to find out. So I called them in the middle of the night and woke them up, but I wasn't going to, but until I saw myself on, which is even worse, because if you just called in the morning, chances are they wouldn't have solved it. But now you're calling them in the middle of the night. They're going, first thing is, what's wrong, Mark? What's wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, my dad now, if I call him in the middle of the night, he'll say, did you have a 300 or did you, or did you get shot at? Did you have your hat on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most guys have to go to counseling after a shooting just to you know, make sure the shooting doesn't have any negative impact on your psyche. But you you need to go to counseling for this hat, because it's obvious you hadn't gotten over this. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we really didn't have that much of that back then. That was all kind of... No. We had a CISD team later in, in Sedgwick County that I kind of was involved with. But uh, back then, yeah, you didn't do that stuff. You just went back to work. They just well, told our, you, suck it up, buttercup. For our listeners to know, we can see you on video, although our listeners can only hear you. But he's got a hat on during this interview, just so you know. <laughs> that's because my bald head is cold that's that's a whole different reason <laughs> well mark's no longer cold he's in hot and humid florida that's right uh, hey but um but the other thing too is as a trooper too you, it's not just uniform too it's your car they shot a hole in your car so now you have a hole in your windshield that's between that between the hat and everything else you probably think your career's over even though it's not but let's talk about what happens afterwards right though because um, obviously you want to learn about Ben. When did you hear the news about Ben, about whether or not he'd survived or not? Back when I got to the, yeah, when I got to Colby PD or to the, to the sheriff's office, it was all combined there in one building in the courthouse, but, um, yeah. But he had, but you'd heard though, he was, he was transported to the hospital, at least at that point. He was, that he was, he was still alive. He was expected to survive. Yeah. 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 And he's lucky too. Like you said, he's a big guy. He got that shot, I think through the lung and then through the arm, wasn't it? Yes. Man, you get lung shots can, I mean, it doesn't take too long for those things to um, kill you, quite frankly. And so he was yeah, lucky. And on- I'd, yeah, I'd known both Ben and his wife. You know, his wife had been an EMT down in in uh, in Oakley, and, and Ben had been a, a police officer down there for a long time. So let's talk now about what you start finding out afterwards, because now news, of, they start tying them into other crimes. So what do you start hearing about what these guys are involved in? I mean, when this happened, what was your thought about, is this just isolated to Kansas or there are, are there other things? Did any of that enter your mind at the time after this, after it had stopped, obviously? It's like you're looking at it, the totality of it. You're going, man, they just, they shot the person. Did you, well, first of all, did you know uh, that they had shot 
that these were definitely the folks that had shot uh, Larry McFarland at the Stuckies? Uh, I think that was assumed. I I don't remember ever thinking. Because they were the same ones that Ben stopped, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that and the red and blue car with the Michigan tags, that was pretty unique, you know, in Kansas. When did you start hearing about these other crimes that they tied them to? Uh, you know, again, a lot of that was kind of later. Um, I mean, I was an outsider, so I went back home to Oakley and, and, uh, you know, a lot of that I'm just hearing kind of the same way everybody else is from the news and the newspaper and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Cause this, when we said crime spree, it starts, I mean, let me just give you a quick thing. This thing you'd think might start a while back. It started on February 8th. I mean, they had left Michigan Danny Rometta, Lisa Dunn. Lisa supposedly said she had been raped by a couple guys, so she had that three fifty seven for her protection, but I think she stole it from her dad. She did steal it from her dad, yeah. February 8th, 1985, armed with a stolen three fifty seven Magnum, Rometta robbed a Tenneco gas station in Ocala, Florida, Steve. Mm-hmm. Shot and killed the clerk after $52, shooting Marie uh, Merle Chet Reader twice in the head and twice in the stomach. Now, let me tell you. There is also a, 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 just an amazing story in this as well, too, because they went to Wa- Wascom, Texas. And uh, so they entered, Dunn and Rometta entered a, a Wascom gas station. 18-year-old Camilla Carroll was finishing up basically her shift. They robbed her. They took her 300 yards away from that into a wooded area. They said, hey, start running away. Rometta tells her, start running away. So she starts running away. He fires. He hits her in both legs. She goes to the ground. He walks up, the son of a bitch, he walks up as she lays on the ground and puts the remaining shots, four more shots into her stomach. Just think, he thinks she's dead. He takes off. You talk about a survivor. This girl waited for them to leave. She, with five slugs in her body, she crawled a quarter of a mile, stopped a passenger car and was taken to Shreveport where she survived. This is how fucking depraved these people were. And Rometta, like you say, big guy with a gun. Oh, yeah, shoots people like that five times, leaves her. Then guess what? Then they go from there. They go to Arkansas, Mulberry, a little town, uh, about 1,500 people. Um, February 11th, about 8 p.m., Linda Marvin was working at Bob's Grocery uh, right off of Interstate, I-40. Uh, they bought some items. Uh, he... Uh, Rometta and uh, Dunn were in there, and uh, he, he shot her 10 times with the 22 caliber pistol. She was dead at the scene. Now, here's the thing about that 22 caliber pistol. Uh, I'm just setting some stage mark because I want to talk to you here in a sec. When they got in the car at Wichita, Rometta basically said, hey, this 22 doesn't work now. Hunter fixed it for him. Hmm. Hunter fixed the 22 and got it working again. Anyway. They drove, uh, yeah, so they left Arkansas now, and that's where they, that's that, so their next stop was in Kansas. So um, they crossed into where they picked up, uh, just on I-135 north of Wichita, they picked up J.C. Hunter, guy who was looking for a ride. He wanted to be dropped off in Salina, where 135 and I-70 meet, and that's where. Even that doesn't make sense. I mean, if he's going to Kansas City. 35. Take 35, well, go up the why turnpike. Would you, yeah, why would you go to Salina? That's out of the way. Well, you're going like another 90, 100 miles out of your way to go up and then over where you could just go diagonal and cut all the way up to Topeka and go to Kansas City. Yeah, a lot of his, that's why he said a lot of this story doesn't make sense. If you folks pull up a Google map and just look at where I-135 is coming out of Wichita and then look at 35, it goes north and then it goes off to the northeast, you'd save yourself probably two hours of driving by going up the turnpike. But I lay out all of that to say this, by this time now, 
they're involved in a lot of murders in a lot of states. So what's the let's let's start walking through now your participation because at some point they got to go to trial here in Kansas. So um, what starts happening from that standpoint? Well, Rometta pretty much from the start. I mean, he pled guilty um, because he he said he wanted to go to a state that had the death penalty. You know, he was basically, he, he claimed responsibility for everything. And he wanted to go to a state with the death penalty because he didn't want to die in prison. Um, so the trial, the initial trial for, um, of course, Mark Walters was dead. Uh, so the trial was in Colby for Lisa Dunn and uh, J.C. Hunter. And there was a lot of security there because there had been a lot of death threats and that kind of thing. Um, and pretty much the security was provided by the patrol because everybody else was, you know, all the locals were involved somehow. So, you know, either as witnesses or whatever of some sort. And uh, so they brought in a bunch of troopers for security. Um, they tried them together. Um, which was a point of contention later on that they were tried together and they had different defenses and, and, and that, um, anyways, they were both found guilty and both given life sentences in Colby. Yeah. But it doesn't end there though, because that's the, I mean, this, the initial trial is over. I think they each got seven life sentences or something like that. Right. And then in the interim, um, they had the trial in Ocala for, Rometta and uh, me and the two uh, half brothers, Dennis Brown and, and Butch or Ken Dival from Colby PD, got subpoenaed by the defense to go to Ocala to, to testify on Danny Rometta's behalf. Well, now, really? there's, now, don't gloss over the story. Let's talk about that because <laughs> the defense attorney, this goes back, this is why I said it was important to when you've realized the crime scene, who had what, where. So um, Walter had the pistol. Um, the 357. Yeah, he, had the, he had the 357. Hunter had and, the 22. Right. Rometta didn't have a gun and Lisa didn't have a gun. And so that was the defense attorney's defense in Florida. Even though he said he wanted to be found guilty, he wanted the death penalty. Um, they were, that was their defense was that Rometta did not have a gun in Kansas. Well, no, he just didn't have a gun at the shootout. At the shootout. You're correct. There were people that testified from the Levant Grain Elevator that Rometta was the one that shot the, the, the manager that lived, Morris Christie. Now, but there's an interesting part, too, and it gets into uh, Ben Albright's testimony, um, because Hunter's trying to say that uh, he's not involved. But it was pretty clear. Albright said he, t I mean, he in his report, he said it was Hunter who shot him. Yes. Uh, and that came up. Well, it. it he he that came up later when they had the the retrial primarily i mean it came up the other time but that's where it was huge uh they had a retrial for for hunter and i don't know maybe i'm skipping ahead too far um it's okay we'll we'll tie it all back together yeah they had a retrial for hunter he was he was he was ordered a retrial it was in hayes um and that was the big point of contention was you know that that ben was mistaken, you know, basically Ben was a nice guy, but he was mistaken by, uh, you know, about who shot him. And all along, Rometta said that he did it. Uh, Lisa said that that Rometta did it. JC denied it. 
but you had Ben's testimony. And what makes that important as well, too, is because I remember this clearly because I had, well, I had the directive to transport the governor one time, John Carlin. So they had flown him out. There was a problem with the nose wheel of the King Air that they were flying. So I had to go pick up something. And then I had to transport of ultimately the governor out to the airport, you know, and, and take him back. And uh, this was not too long after they had allowed Florida to extradite Rometta. Um, But Florida, once they got a hold of him, they're like, hey, sorry, Skippy, we ain't giving him back. And that pissed Carlin off because Carlin wanted him. Yes, because Carlin was against the death penalty. Kansas oh, at yeah, that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had forgotten all of that. That's why I'm here for you, Mark. I am here. I am your memory. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Carlin didn't want to give him up because he was against the death penalty. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I'd forgotten that. And and so what happened was not only did Florida not give him back to Kansas, but Florida did share him with Arkansas. You know why Florida shared him with Arkansas? Because Arkansas had the death penalty too. Yes. So, yes. So they Arkansas sent him back to Florida. So Rometta wasn't a tough guy at that point. But let's talk about this retrial. We don't want to go into the specifics of the trial. I mean, because that's that's getting to legal minutia. But what they did was Lisa had presented a defense of battered woman syndrome. She was trying to say Rometta had controlled her all the time. And Hunter was basically saying, hey, it wasn't me. I was just along, you know, for the ride. I didn't do anything, even though he had a gun in his hand. He ran off with the gun in his hand. He was looking for the gun in his hand. Ben Albright says he's the one that shot me. But that being said, tell us about the retrial. So, I mean, but actually, before we get to that, let's talk about Danny Rometta's trial. How weird was it to go down to Florida and testify on behalf of somebody who's been convicted of murder? And you're supposed to be testifying for the defense now. Yeah, I, you know, everybody was nice. Uh, it was just really, really awkward. I mean, I mean, we get picked up at the airport by the defense and we, we you know, we're traveling, we get taken to a hotel by the defense and we get, you know, we're sitting on the other side of the courtroom and all the cops are sitting over on the other side looking at us. And I don't know, it was just, it was just, uh, Do you th- just I awkward. Mean, what did they think that you were doing this? Like, I mean, Hey, we like this guy. We think he's innocent. I mean, it's like, no, you were subpoenaed. I mean, you're a law enforcement officer. You got no choice. Somebody gives you a subpoena. They say you're going to appear in court. What choice do you have? Yeah, yeah, we had no choice, and they, yeah, the cops knew that. But I mean, it was just, it was just awkward. It was weird. So, how long were you on the stand? Uh, and, and it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. I went through my spiel, and 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 you know, uh, they didn't grill me or anything. Uh, it it wasn't bad. They just, you know, are you sure? You know, you you sure? who had the gun and who had this. And yeah, that was pretty much it. it. It wasn't bad. It was just awkward. But like, to your point, it has nothing to do with him shooting and killing the clerk there in Ocala, you know, but they were just going to throw up anything that they could. Right. Because Danny, sure. it's that old saying, right? Everybody wants to be a gangster till it's time to do gangster shit. Well, Rometta, you wanted to get yourself killed. Just plead, take the death penalty. Why are you going to trial? But yet here he is again, because he's uh he wants to be big man on campus. So you get that done, uh, and then sometime later, Hunter and Dunn get their retrial. Do you testify in that? Yes, I testified in both. But again, you know, those were those were all pretty easy. I mean, I just kind of went, and it was like uh, nobody really wanted to hammer me on the stand. I mean, I didn't have that much. But there was one statement, though, that she made that I thought was very important, but they tried to explain it away later. When they've got them handcuffed and now you guys are separating her and Rometta, she goes, I love you, Danny. He goes, yeah, I love you too. Were you there for that? Um, yes. Yeah, I was there for that part. 
There was another statement that was supposedly made, and I don't remember, and I don't remember who repeated it, and I don't remember or not if it was true, um, but that she had said something about she didn't know brains would scatter that far. You know, the, the stuff that was all over the truck. and uh, Walters. Yeah. 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 And uh, I... I just don't know who said that or if I heard it or, or what now, um, but it's not something you would make up either. So I know I heard it from somewhere, but I don't, I, nobody else has since then. I haven't heard that repeated, so I don't know where that came from. I read I read one part, Mark, where it said when uh, when you guys approached uh, Rometta and Dunn that Rometta had been shot in the butt. Is that right? Had a gunshot wound to the rear end? I think it was her. Well, said she had been hit with a shot. What I don't know. Uh, they said it was he, a he shot. May have, and that may have been what I thought I hit. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, and that's that's the one where Hunter tried to explain. He said, no, I was trying to kill him, and I missed, and I hit Dunn. Well, that doesn't make sense because there's no shot. There was no shotgun out at the scene, right? No. No shotgun blast went off, right? So, I mean, this is one of the things that kind of makes it confu- confusing from their defense standpoint. But that being said... She tried to, or Hunter tried to argue that he was coerced and everything, even though he had plenty of opportunities to leave, get out of the vehicle. Because this guy, Rometta didn't know this guy. He didn't know where he lived or anything else. But I say all of that to say this. So you go through the second trial for Dunn. Uh, do you remember what happens with Lisa on the second trial? Yeah. It, and and I, I, a lot of it had to do with the fact that they were tried together. Uh, of course, they argued, you know, like you said, the legal stuff, but that, you know, they should have had several trials and they should have been, you know, moved to different places and all that stuff. But the main thing was that they were arguing that um, they had different defenses and they weren't allowed. So she had uh, uh, gotten somehow somebody from the Menninger Institute and had, I, I don't, I'm not really familiar with all of that, but basically you know, that she was a battered woman and that she was afraid to leave. And, you know, that's actually become, I guess, quite a meaningful case over the years. Well, let let us let us tell you how nice of a guy Danny Rometta is, right? You know, the big stud while he's got a gun in his hand. Listen to this, Steve. You'll get a kick out of this. Um, because the Florida prosecutor used his pleas in Kansas and Arkansas as a basis to seek the death penalty there, he tried to recant his guilty pleas to no avail. In court papers, he claimed... And Mark, I don't know if you've heard this before. It was all Dunn's doing. Dunn yes. dominated and directed Mr. Rometta during the crime spee. Um, he basically said she was responsible for everything. Mr. Rometta was just a poor victim of circumstances. He was a manipulated little spineless, weakless, weak jellyfish that had no control over what was going on. Well, what he is is a poor liar. I think that in legal terminology, yeah. I totally believe. Because she had twice the IQ he did, probably. Yeah. She was a, she was like a, you know, a, an honor student that had kind of gone bad and got to drinking, you know, in her later years in high school. You know, he's an older guy that had been in and out of jail for 10 years. Well, his whole family, I did some research on the family back up in Michigan. He, he basically, he outdid all of his brothers. He had, I think, two to three other brothers that all got in trouble. I mean, they wrote a whole article about them. That's what came out talking about the Rometta family. Meet the Rometta family is what the article said. And going through all the various crimes, they were evicted on a regular basis, moving from place to place and just committing. I mean, this this was a, a low rent version of the Sopranos, you know, just a little crime family. But as we say, let's talk about Hunter's trial because this has a unique ending to it. So Hunter gets a retrial. You testify in that. What happens in that trial? 
it pretty much boiled down to, you know, like I said, you know, they didn't believe Ben Albright. Um, you know, and, and I, my personal opinion is, and again, I'm prejudiced as hell because, you know, I'm a friend of Ben's. Uh, I, you know, and I know, you know, there's certain things in your life that you both know, you know, that are the, the, the picture in your brain is ab- absolutely locked and you can't lose it. And I'm, I know I can absolutely see Mark Walter shooting at me. And I have no doubt in my mind that, you know, that Ben knew who shot at him. Uh, you know, having said that, the jury didn't believe that, and uh, they cut him loose. But. And the rest of the story. <laughs> Paul Harvey, that's, you're actually right. Where going. But the rest of the story, Steve, uh, remember we've talked before about divine, interden- divine intervention and, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think divine intervention plays a role here because, Mark, give us the rest of the story. Yeah, four days later, I mean, he's 35 years old, and four days after he's released, he dies of a heart attack. I think he's in Kansas City or somewhere up there, right, walking down the street, and he just dies of a heart attack right there on the sidewalk. <laughs> His father claims it was stress from the trial. Yeah, stress from a criminal life he decided to pursue. Uh, hey, it's, now, uh, have, real quick question. You can't have any sympathy for these people when you got all these victims and their family members who are left with with people who just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So let's talk real quickly too about Lisa's Dun, Lisa Dunn's trial uh, because you obviously had to testify. But this time they split the trials, right? Lisa and and uh, J C Hunter had separate trials. Is that right? Yes, J C Hunter's trial was in Hayes, and Lisa Dunn's trial was in Topeka, so they were all separate. Man, that's a long way to go for a trial. I mean, did they? They really not think she could get a fair trial in Hayes? Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess. Wow. Yeah, that is that's that's absolutely a long way. I mean, to all those witnesses from Colby to go all the way to Topeka, that's a long ways. Yeah. So um, that trial, do you remember the outcome of that? Uh, yeah, she was she was found not guilty um, on the battered woman syndrome thing, but she didn't. She wasn't released right away because they. Um, they they held her based on uh, Arkansas wanting her. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She's not. She doesn't got to get out of jail for a card. And you know the thing that bothers me about this too. And and Murph and I have talked to. And actually, we were just at the Southern California Gang Conference. We have. Um, we we hope to get this interview nailed down. But it was it's with a true crime victim of human sex trafficking. I mean, you want to talk about somebody that was basically battered. And we talked with Sherry Foster. We talked about some of the work she did with women who were battered in these shelters. Shit like that does a disservice to the women who are really victims of battered women's syndrome. She voluntarily left. She stole the gun. She was there with him the whole time. Uh, I just, you know, at some point it's like, I just don't believe it. I I get you got to agree with the court's decision, but at some point I just don't agree with that. But, you know, like you say, she... I know she's out free now, but I know that she still had problems with fraud and bad check writing. Even then when she got released out of Arkansas, she ended up coming back, I think, and doing another stint mm-hmm. for additional charges. Yeah, she she uh, she stayed in jail for for like, I mean, because she was uh, her re- retrial was in 92 and she was uh, she was still in jail in December of 93. And then. They allowed her to plead guilty to one count Arkansas did of, of hindering prosecution. Uh, they sentenced her to 20 years in prison, but then they gave her credit for her time served in Kansas and they suspended the rest of the sentence and let her go. Arkansas, why would you do that? 
just makes you sick. Six people are dead, three people critically wounded. A guy loses his entire career. Um, and and we're we're letting these people walk like this. But that's a that's a topic of another day. But um this case continues to wind through. And let me tell you, most times you think death penalty cases take like, you know, 15, 20 years to resolve themselves. Didn't really it took long, but it didn't take that long with Danny Rometta because he got his wish, even though he fought tooth and nail against it. Oh, yeah, I want the death penalty. Then when it was facing him, staring him in the face, oh, I don't really want the death penalty. It was Lisa Dunn who did everything. So um, March 31st, 1998, uh, it's the date Danny Rometta meets old Sparky. How did you hear about that? Uh, it, it, you know, it, it was uh, it was on the news here. It was pretty much covered by that. I Again, I was, you know, totally an outsider, and, and especially by then because I'd moved to Wichita, but... Um, yeah, it, it, it pretty, and and the interesting part of that, and there, there was a a story prior to that that there had been some problems with that electric chair. I don't know. Did, yeah, there was a guy. They it, almost, you probably know more about it than me. Well, actually, one of the guys got blue flame coming out of his head, and they they tried yeah. to stop it. They say that, but Florida said, I think it was a four to three decision. Said no, it's still constitutional. It's okay. <laughs> they fixed old Sparky, um, and it worked just fine for Rometta because it only took seventeen seconds. For this guy, or just over 30 seconds, I should say. He was declared dead at 7, 12 a.m. on March 31st, 1998. Uh, he's room temperature. So, shocker, folks, spoiler alert, Danny Rometta dies uh, in Old Sparky, and uh, he's no longer a threat to society. See, now go ahead and say something bad about Florida now. I'm, look, you guys kind of, <laughs> kind of got an express lane down there like Texas. You kill us, we yeah, will kill Florida you back. Florida and Texas. Yeah. yeah. They get her done. Get her done. So, I like it. When was this case finally over for you? I don't know what you mean totally by over, but I mean, I guess in 1998, I didn't, um, probably, I mean, the last involvement that I had in it would have been, uh, testifying in Topeka. On Lisa Dunn's case. Yes. Yes. And then, uh, and then obviously with, uh, Rometta being executed. Yeah. But this went on for 10 years. So one incident you were involved with, you know, lasted 10 years. Um, but. That's kind of when you look back on it now, I mean, everybody says, well, I would have, could have, should have. But the thing is, you were in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, going to the right driveway. And like you said, I think what you, and I want folks to know, too, is that um, Mark won't tell you himself, so I'm going to tell you. But it, for his actions uh, and for his bravery that day, too, he was awarded the, the Kansas High Patrol Governor's Award. And what makes that thing exclusive is I think by the time you had gotten it in the 75 or since 1937, it would only be an awarded, I think, four or five times. And you were wow. one of the recipients of the governor's award uh, for that day. And so uh, t- tell us about that, man. You get to go see the governor, get your picture. There's an awards banquet, you know, with the Kansas Association of Chiefs of Police. Dude, you're you're a Kansas, even though you weren't an original farm boy, we, we've now put you in the farm boy club. You're a farm boy hero, my friend. I didn't know. I didn't know we were sitting here in the presence of royalty, man. I'm very well. More, the interesting part impressed. of that is you just mentioned, uh, it was John Carlin. So, uh, that, that was who the award was from. But that, 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 putting that other spin on it kind of makes it, but it was cool. I mean, it was really cool. You know, my mom and dad flew out from, from DC and, you know, got to go up to the Capitol and, you know, Everybody, everybody enjoys their day of fame, and I and I had mine. Very yeah, nice. but it's, but it's then it was nice the Kansas Association of Chiefs of Police, the award, gold award for valor. So you got to go to another ceremony too, right? Did yes, you go to the, yes. Yeah, 
Yes. Nice thing about that free food and free booze, right? I mean, you get to do just <laughs> right. hang out for a night. Now, let me ask you, did you wear your hat uh, at the award ceremony? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think we were inside. So. Oh, didn't have to wear the hat. Yeah. Well, um, so let's, I mean, but that's, no, that's great too, because I'm, I'm telling you, Steve, I know from the history standpoint, you know, the patrol was created in 1937, but they have the the governor's award, then they have the superintendent's award, then you get, you know, letters of uh, commendation or other stuff. And so, uh, I mean, to get the governor's award, what Mark did, I mean, it, considering what you went through and stuff, I think a lot of the guys got awards that day. And it was, I mean, here, I hate to say it, it's almost like Star Wars, a rag, rag, ragtag band of rebels. Here are people not in radio contact. You know what? Had it not been for the fact you got the governor's award, you would have had a reprimand from your letter from your captain going, uh, Dear Trooper Convoy, you didn't have your cover on. You weren't in radio contact. You didn't have your vest on, you know, et cetera. But instead, it's kind of like, uh, that's irrelevant, you know, in the big picture. You know, one, one question for you, Mark. Uh, you were carrying your personal rifle. Was that acceptable under... KSP. Yeah, yeah, I had permission. Policy. You just okay. had you, you had a sheet. You had to get signed off on uh, authorized equipment stuff. And yeah, it was on my list, so I was good there. Which was always carried in your little. Uh, mine was in the back of our fuel log. You remember the little fuel logs? You yeah, yeah, them yeah, up? yeah, yeah. Yeah, you had your authorized exactly equipment list signed by your sergeant. So I had to, like a backup weapon and stuff. So all you had to do is just get it signed off. You know, and that was. Uh, are you and jealous? That was supposed to be checked at your quarterly inspection. So no. I'm not jealous at all. You I'm want to be a trooper. About, I'm not going to say this about Mark, but I know how anal you are, Morgan. And, you know, I know your lists were probably perfect and your letters are made exactly right. Oh, no, my handwriting sucked, but I did. But everything was – I washed my car every <laughs> every week before I went on duty. It was shined. You know, quarterly inspections that. weren't a problem. You could have done an inspection on me any day. I would have been good. You know, everything yeah. was clean. You know, just – even the uniform, man, had to be clean. But anyway, I digress. Let's make this about Mark. So – Mark, you said you were at Oakley uh, for nine years. So when did you finally get the bug to say, look, I want to move to the big town. I, I got to get out of Oakley because it's just not doing it for me. Uh, I got promoted to sergeant in 87. So that, that's when I went down to Wichita. And other than, other than I did a year in Kansas City, and that was kind of a strange deal, but I did a year in Kansas City uh, on the turnpike. Well, I went to Troop F, Wichita. Sedgwick County, and I was there from 87 to 94, and then in 94, I transferred to the Turnpike, and at the Turnpike. Were you still, though, in Wichita on the Turnpike, or were you somewhere up the Turnpike? Uh, yeah, I, I was in Wichita almost the whole time, other than one year uh, One year I did in Kansas City, and they had, that was a, um, I, I took the role of Midnight Sergeant, which they didn't have. They had three sergeants, um, but I, I became the midnight sergeant. So I was like the first sergeant in the state of Kansas that was that worked midnight. And so I had the whole turnpike all the way from Kansas City to Oklahoma. And they let me live anywhere I wanted to. So I lived in Kansas City for a year, but then I came back to Wichita. Now, there's something strange, though. I say strange. There's something unique about the relationship between the turnpike, the troopers who are on the turnpike, and all the other parts of the patrol, Mark. So... um the way they're funded, the way things happen. So let's talk about the turnpike for a minute because the turnpike folks lead a little bit better life than the average trooper. Much better, much better. It's like, it's actually, um, it, it, there were instances where I didn't know how to act because it was kind of like going to work for private business. If you needed something, you went and got it. And I didn't know how to act. I mean, with that, it was, it was strange. 
didn't have to fill out a form, get the key to the supply closet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And wait three weeks and, you know, do everything on low bid. And Even the cars were, yeah, the cars were supplied by the turnpike. Um, they were they turnpike paid your salary. Cars. Yeah. Yeah. They paid our salary to the state. Um, their insurance was a better plan than the state's, which was the incentive for most people. Yeah. One of my classmates, Joe Bott, just retired. It was captain uh, uh, the turnpike. Joe worked for me at Troop F and worked for me again at the Turnpike. And then, yeah, he just retired as Joe's one of the best there is. Well, let me, I, I, I dispute that a little bit with you and let me tell okay. you why. Is he a classmate? Three, he was my classmate. Three days, three days before we're supposed to graduate, my, uh, we are doing defense tactics. And rem I don't know if when you went through, did they bring the Capital Area Security Patrol, what they called CASP at that time? Did they come through part of the academy with you? No. Well, they did with us. And we had one guy who was a real wuss. I won't mention his name. I ought to, but nobody will know who he is anyway. But the guys in my class would know who he is when, when, when he talked about his accoutrements on his uniform were misplaced. Um, we're doing defense contacts, defense uh, tactics, and Joe Bott is the guy we're attacking. So it's supposed to be two on one. Me and this other guy, I say, hey, look. And he's a big guy. Joe's a big guy. Used to play football and everything. So I tell the guy, you go after it, you know, you go this side, I'll go this side. Well, the guy wusses out. He backs up and Joe's got boxing gloves on. He goes to punch the guy. And because the guy didn't grab him like he did, I thought I was going to be in a different position. Joe's elbow hits me in my nose, moves my nose from the middle of my face to underneath my left eye, basically. I've got major blood coming. Yeah, what major <laughs> <laughs> Now you're jealous. <laughs> no. So, Mark, three days before the graduation, my nose is broken. I'm bleeding like a stuck hog. They take me down to St. Catherine's Hospital, or uh, St., uh, not Catherine's, but uh, I can't think of the hospital, St., uh, the one there on uh, Santa Fe in uh, Salina. Anyway, but um, they take me to that hospital. It's not broken so bad that they have to do surgery, but they basically give me morphine shots, move my nose back into place. I have these things called, believe it or not, nasal tampons. And they stick them in your nose, fill them with water, so it's like a splint. So in my graduation picture, you see me there. I have my cover on. I have my head tilted down because I don't want you to see my nose in my graduation picture. I look like I've got two tennis balls up each side, each nostril. And that's because Joe Bott <laughs> elbow broke my nose and moved it. And to this day, I actually had to go back and have a septoplasty done because of all of the uh, scar tissue and everything that had accumulated in my nose. I got to the point I couldn't breathe out of my nose. So they had to go back and do it again. Anyway. Yeah. Joe's a good guy, except for his elbow. His right elbow really sucks. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, but Joe, Joe's a good guy. Uh, I mean, we actually, we only had 16 people in our class. Do you remember how many you had? Yeah, we were the second largest class ever. We had 39 and that, uh, we graduated 35 and actually had more than that drop out. We had two that dropped out the first night. Um, Why? I don't know if you remember, I don't know. Uh, you remember back then you all, the class always started on June 18th. Yeah, because it was it was the, that was the start of the pay period. Pay period, yeah. Okay, and our June 18th was a Sunday, so we were we went there, and I think it was Father's Day, if I remember right. But um, anyway, so we went in on a Sunday. Um, they gave us the 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 captain's name was Enos Hadley. I don't know if you remember him or heard the name. I remember. I remember the name. Yeah, I never met him. He he came in that night and said, you know, tonight. Your guests of the Kansas Highway Patrol tomorrow, your asses are mine. And we woke up in the morning and two guys were gone. 
So I have no, I, I, you know, I have no clue who they were. I mean, I didn't know anybody yet. So, but, so they grabbed two guys that were on the, that lived in Topeka and, uh, both of them were on Topeka PD and then they showed up the next day to. And the bad part when you're a young, you know, trooper like I was, and you're, you're coming out of a not very big paying job because I was on Salina PD. So you, the, the thing they paid once a month on the patrol at that time. So you'd start on June 18th. It was awful. And the pay was always two weeks following. So you'd work June 18th to July 17th. You wouldn't get paid until August 1st. So you went exactly six right. Weeks six weeks without a paycheck. Mm. <laughs> and you thought DEA was bad, Murph. No, we were doing pretty good. We didn't get paid a lot when I started, but it came up pretty good later as your career goes. Well, ours did too, like in 84, 85, Burt Cantwell um, was the first colonel that came from outside the patrol. He was the Wyandotte County Sheriff, and he's one of the first that really went to the legislature and started working on the pay. But um, let's finish out because there's a couple interesting things I want to talk about what you do, uh, Mark. But so you were uh, the first sergeant on the night shift, which, by the way, nobody worked nights. Nobody worked 24-7 on the patrol except for the turnpike, except the turnpike back turnpike, in the day. Yeah. 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 Everybody else, you'd work day shift and, uh, you know, afternoon shift or whatever, work until the and late night if you had to. At yeah. night, right. So uh, after sergeant, what'd you do after sergeant? Uh, we went through a whole bunch of stuff. That was when all of the different rank things were going on. Um, you know, they had developed the the rank of master trooper after I got promoted. So I never, and they had done some other things so that the, the troopers had kind of moved up through the association pay-wise. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden they decided they needed to kind of help supervisors get bumped up a little because troopers were making more than the supervisors in some instances and in a lot of instances. And then, so I don't know if you remember this, but they created the rank of second Lieutenant. Do you remember that? Yeah. It was probably, yeah. okay. Well, I was, so I was a second Lieutenant uh, for a little while, which was basically a Sergeant. And then um, they bumped every, they kind of bumped everybody up. All the second Lieutenants became first Lieutenants and they eliminated the rank of second Lieutenant. And they moved the lieutenants to captain. That that's kind of when they were going through all that, all that changes. So anyway, I got promoted to lieutenant um, in that rigmarole. And then how'd you? So what did you stay in that role till you retired, or what'd you do? Uh, no, I ended up retiring at the rank of captain at the at the turnpike, and I stayed the whole my last fourteen years were all at the turnpike. That was the only place to be. Were you there? Um, were you on the turnpike when Bud Pribinal was shot and killed? Oh, no, no, no. That was before, that that was before, before I came you... on the patrol. Oh, that's right. I was thinking, I'm sorry. That was Conroy O'Brien. He was that like came 76. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Something um, like that. One of the guys, was it Ed Hanlon or somebody? He was shot and wounded on the turnpike, I think, during Ed a chase. Vose. Ed Vos. Ed Vos. Yeah, Ed Vos. Yes. Yeah. No, I was there then. Yes. Now, there was one shooting, and I don't remember the trooper's name, but it changed the patrol's policy from going from having uh, handguns, uh, you know, revolvers to semi-automatics. And I'm trying to, the, the trooper that was shot five or six times, uh, I think down by Wichita. Uh, yeah, there was a kid named Jeff Harsh. Yeah, Jeff Seven Harsh. Times, he was shot eight times. Yeah, that that's a different story for me. Um, that one scared the hell out of me. Um, Jeff had trained on my shift. And his uh, training officer was the current superintendent, Herman Jones. Yep. Um, so Jeff trained, and, I, and Herman worked for me, and so he trained on my shift. And the captain at that time, once you got out from underneath your training officer, he wanted you 
put on another shift. So I'm back in Maryland. He had, so Jeff had just got put on this other shift. And I'm back in Maryland visiting my folks. I'm by myself. Me and my dad are out. My dad had a 42-foot boat. And we were out close to the Naval Academy up there somewhere. And, you know, this is back before cell phones. And he gets a call on a Marine band, you know, basically to get me to shore that they needed to call me. And all they told him was that one of my troopers had been shot. And so I got this going through my head of all my guys, and I have no clue. That's all they told us on the Marine band. And I'm scared to death. It took us a half an hour to get back to shore. And then it turns out it was Jeff, who wasn't even mine anymore. So I, I didn't even think of him. But Jeff had stopped um, some guys that had just robbed a bank in Nebraska or something. And, yeah, they shot him eight times. Jeff lived. Uh, he tried to come back on the patrol and uh, didn't. But Jeff has been very successful in life. He ended up being a a, a principal in at the Goddard School District. Yeah, that was, uh, again, May 24th was Conroy O'Brien's shooting. May 24th, 1990 was Jeff Hirsch's shooting. But anyway, but yeah, that, I remember that too. Uh, because that was yeah, that Hirsch, was the be- Hirsch. I was saying harsh. Yes, harsh. Yeah, you're Hirsch, right. Yeah, but that was the that was the beginning of the change from the patrol policy to go from revolvers to semi-automatics. And uh, uh, I mean, they carry semi-automatics today, but I think that was one of the uh, incidences that did that. So I mean, it's a lot of things happened in that time. So hey, Mark. So um, you you finish up as captain of uh, the turnpike, but during that time, there was a lot of stuff that happened on the turnpike, right? Between shootings and car chases and lots of felony arrests and uh, um, I mean, it's see, I don't want to say it's a different world, but it, it seemed like it, it became a different world when you started looking at how much more violent people became and how much more dangerous it became for the troops out there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I heard you mention it before, but I mean, anytime, anywhere, you know, you get out and you stop a car in the middle of the night and you're 50 miles from help and then you've done it. And, and then you find out it's stolen when it's too late, you know, you've already stopped them and committed yourself and, and uh, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff that goes on. You mean like those days when NCIC was slow in responding? So you're waiting, you have to get out, you walk up to the car and they go, Garden City 150, are you 1012? Which means, are you with anybody? And you know, at that point it's like, oh shit. You know, you yeah. you go, just a minute, I'll be right back, folks. You go back, you flip off your outside speaker. And then they say, uh, you know, got a hit on NCIC, possible stolen vehicle. Oh, great. And I was about two feet away from the front door of the driver, you know, when I found that out. Well, yeah, and I, I was terrible at stuff like that. And I'm married married to a, a retired dispatcher, so uh, she would be the first to tell you. But uh, I was terrible about keeping dispatch informed of what I was doing. And I was, you know, I'd stop drunks in the middle of the night, and you know, up in Kansas City, and they didn't know where I was until I called and asked for a wrecker. They're like, what? You know, you're supposed to call us when you make the stop, not when you need a wrecker. No. Yeah. There you go, Mark the Problem Kid. Well, hey, let's finish up with what you're doing now because you uh, you might thought that you weren't a good shot, but when it comes to the bowling alley, <laughs> um, you're a pretty good shot on the bowling alley. How many 300 games do you have under your belt? I've had my radio number. I've had 16, and that was the last one was last September. That's why you teach bowling, right? So you teach bowling, yeah. you, you do some stuff with bowling. What do you do? I uh, Yeah, well, I coach high school. I'm assistant coach for uh, – one of the big high schools down here, Wichita Heights. 
and I've I've done that for seven years, and uh, and I and I do private lessons. So yes, folks, bowling is a high school sport in Kansas. By the way, Wichita State usually has a pretty good collegiate bowling team, don't they? Oh, they're incredible. I mean, their bowling program at Wichita State has put Wichita on the map. I mean, you look, you watch the pros and. Any given time, you know, two out of the five that make the show are from Wichita State. Do you know that, Murph? We're known for bowling. Well, you know what? Uh, Javier and I actually got to speak at Wichita State with our, uh, you know, telling the true story of Pablo Escobar and all that. And it's a great audience. Had a good time with everybody. But that's the one place where somebody put a young kid about 12 years old to come up and ask me <laughs> during the Q&A, ask, how many people have you killed? <laughs> you know, and you just kind of look at each other. And I looked at him and I said, you mean today? <laughs> you know, and that kind of broke the ice. Yeah, the day's not over. Day's not <laughs> yeah, exactly. Over. But then we shamed the, uh, I shamed whoever put that young kid up. That, to ask that was stupid. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But other than that, I mean, everything's great. People were very nice to us out there. They really took good care of us. Nice place. No, it's, I mean, other than for, the one bitch about Wichita, though, is have they finally finished construction on Kellogg and the overpasses and everything else, all the other stuff? Is that finally done, Mark? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that went on for like 15 years, I think. You could go at in there. Least. To, at least, yeah. yeah. It, and Steve, it's just, oh, it's all it is is a very long stretch of road, about 10 miles or something. It took them 15 years to finish 10 miles of road in Wichita. Well, you, you know, and I, I, I was stationed in North Carolina for a while. You know what the state joke is in North Carolina? It's when you ride down the highway and you see the signs that say men working. That's the joke. <laughs> Nobody's <laughs> doing crap. You know what our joke used to be in in Kansas, and you'll appreciate this too, Mark. What's black and gold and sleeps three? K dot truck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we digress. So, uh, hey, um, Mark, but just parting words. When you look back on that, I mean, that this was you were meant to be where you were supposed to be, you know, and you did what you did. Um, but talk just real, just finish real quickly so people understand. People think, oh, you're just a bunch of rednecks out there in Kansas. But, you know, when you're the only guy, like I said, a guy or girl out, and you've got to handle the situation, but having two people killed in a town the size of Miami or Atlanta, that makes the news. But it's like, you know, life goes on, right? But we're talking about killing two people in Levant. We're talking about killing one person in Greenfield. They haven't had that many homicides out there in 50 years. Oh, it was huge. I mean, it was... It had a cre- an incredible effect, basically, on probably that third of the state, at least. I mean, it's like, um, you know, even now, I, if that subject ever comes up, you know, somebody that's that's younger will go, oh, yeah, I remember I was in third grade when that happened. I remember them locking us down in school and that kind of stuff. It had a, it had a huge impact. I mean, those, you know, it's the same old thing, uh, I, and I don't know this, but I'm odds are pretty good that that farm that I, that we went into that day, you know, was probably unlocked. Yeah. Oh, you know, they all are. That's, yeah, this is that's Kansas. the way it was back then. And, and, and that, that, that changed things out here considerably, or out there considerably. Yeah. I mean, you go on vacation, people, I remember us uh, living in Chapman. We went on vacation one time, came home and guess what? We left our door unlocked the whole time and not a single problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You know, it's just the way it goes. But anyway, Hey, look, Mark, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, former, Kansas High Patrol Trooper, Murph, Trooper. Did you get that, Trooper? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You going to say something about him. Trooper? Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for him. <laughs> he gives me such a hard time. Gives me such a hard time. But, man, no, it was, it was a great organization to belong to. A lot of history in that. And 
um, like I said, you know, it's one of those experiences you just, you, you obviously you never forget, you make lifelong friends. And uh, uh, I'm just, I'm very glad that you agreed to do this. I don't know if you've done many of these interviews about this. Is this your first interview about it? Oh yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah. Um, there's a lady that's writing a book. So I got interviewed maybe a year ago, but prior to that, never. Now she's writing a book. Well, t- tell her to listen to the podcast if she wants the real story, because we get to the real story here. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, what's what's impressive about you, Mark, is is you're obviously a, a very humble man. Uh, you're not trying to gain, gain any, uh, claim any glory or fame from the incident. You just you portrayed it as you were just out doing your job. You just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But that's what this job's all about, is you're out there serving the public. I love the title, public servant. A lot of people think that's a derogatory term, and I certainly don't. Um, and so it's, you know, it's truly an honor to meet you, to see that there are really good people in the Kansas Highway Patrol, other than, you know, who I'm talking about. Hey, uh, hey. But <laughs> seriously, it's a true honor to have you on the show, and thank you for giving us your time today. Thank you, Merv. That means a lot coming from you. I, thank you. What? What am I chopped liver in this conversation here between you two? <laughs> mute button here so we can mute Morgan. You know? yeah. <laughs> I remember I run this. This is a it's a, no anyway. Hey, but Mark, thanks again though. K sixteen or as they say now X sixteen. You know, uh, but you, I mean, you never give it up, right? You still uh, it's it's still fun to hang out. I like the KHP group that we have. You still you get to make contact with you know young, new, and old. You know all the folks coming on and great way to stay in contact. But I love telling your story because. I just want people to know, you know, especially uh, there's a lot of sacrifice made, even in smaller agencies, smaller states. You know, maybe we don't have the population other states do, but, you know, my God, you put on a uniform, you put on a badge and a gun, no matter who you are. um, You're part of the brotherhood. You're part of the sisterhood. And this is me. People can't see this, but this is me saluting you, (laughs) former Army MP, former Captain Kansas High Patrol. (laughs) Thank you, sir, for everything that you did. And thank you for being a great citizen and remaining in Kansas and not fleeing back to the Taxachusetts or wherever you came from, you know, in Florida. Don't go to Florida. Wherever you do, don't go to Florida with Merv. Come on down. Come on down, Mark. Okay. All right. Hey, guys, that's it for today. Thank you again, Mark, for doing this. Uh, Everybody else, thank you. Stay tuned for the debrief. Well, it's, it's an honor to work with guys like this, and I'm proud to say that I was a trooper when this guy was a trooper when this was going on. And But Murph, I go back to, it's like a lot of people don't realize how times have changed. We're, he's talking about reloading while they're under fire, dealing with people that they know have killed at least two, probably three, wounded a deputy sheriff. And he's reloading his Smith & Wesson 686 with ammo dumps, loading them one round at a time. I know that's that's the way it used to be. You know, the semi-autics didn't they didn't come out till much later. So everybody had revolvers back in the day. It's uh, and there's an art to reloading under, especially under fire. It doesn't matter if it's an automatic or semi-automatic or, or a revolver. There's still an art to it. You've got to practice. And I thought the the biggest thing he was worried about is not what's the damage to my patrol car. What am I going to do? But it's like, where's my hat? Is yeah. my <laughs> lieutenant going to find me without my hat? <laughs> That was that was the best part of the story because, you know, his supervisor shows up and the first thing he's got to report to him is, I'm sorry I don't have my hat on. <laughs> Come on, dude. You've just been in a gunfight with murder suspects. Are you really worried about your hat? But yeah, but you know what? That shows pride in the organization on Mark's point because, you know, on his part, I'm sorry, that um, he was concerned about his personal appearance because that's, that's uh, part of the job. 
And that's when you're out there and let me stress on people. A lot of people think, oh, if you're just troopers in these areas, like, you know, other cops do this stuff. Let me tell you, when you're the only guy out sometimes, like he was for two, three, maybe four counties, mm -hmm. that's it. Your backup is not right around the corner. So you have to be able to handle these things. So, yeah. uh, and he handled it well and acquitted himself well, like I said, uh, and I know from, uh, because I was on the patrol when you were awarded the governor's award, it is the highest honor you can give. And I think I was trying to look up the stats. They don't have a listing on the Highway Patrol main webpage, you know, for the awards. Uh, I looked in the uh, yearbook that came out, the 75th anniversary one came out a few years ago, but they don't list all the governor's award. But I think it's since 1937, it's only been awarded like 10 or 12 times. So wow. Wow. He's and, one of the recipients. So. And justly deserved. I mean, the man put his life in danger without question. Absolutely. So this is me saluting you again, Trooper Convoy, yes, radio sir. number K-16. Proud to know you, sir. So anyway, hey, guys, if you like that episode, which I know you did, head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. Let us know what you thought of that episode. Not necessarily of us. You know, hey, you know, we're kind of we're kind of like a, a hemorrhoid. We flare back up every now and then to bother you. But uh, <laughs> the, the things that really grow on you, we, we, you know, we want you. We're like we grow on you. But uh, take care of Mark for us. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com, our website. Uh, that's where we're constantly updating, putting books, merch, uh, you know, fabulous pictures. We'll have a few pictures of Mark on there, as you saw. Follow us on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. PayPal.com. Use our email, GameofCrimesPodcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show, but where you got to be, where you got to be, where do you got to be, Murph? Come over to Patreon and listen to all the bonus content we come up with. There's some really good stuff on there, and there's some really just silly stuff on there. But you're going to have a lot of fun because we don't take ourselves seriously. No, and we've got our case of the month coming up, our second bonus episode. You can't make this shit up. We've got our uh, – we'll be doing our live stream review. And then for you, uh, something we're going to do a little bit different. It's actually a request, Murph. We're going to see if we can arrange this. One of our people, one of our players at the Warden of the Throne level said, hey, could we just do – instead of you doing a video – you know, or live video where we hear you. Can we can we do like a roundtable where we all come together and do Q&A just with our Warden of the Throne people? So yeah. um, we're going to do something special for you guys. But we, we do it because you're special. We're special. We're all special. Everybody gets a ribbon. So that's how <laughs> special we are. <laughs> Participation trophy. Yeah. Hey, guys, but we want to thank you once again, our players on Patreon, our players here on the podcast. We want to thank you guys for listening to us. And once again, for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the original, unadulterated, always funny and insightful game of crimes. <laughs>